Genesis 6. And I want to read you verses 5 through 11. Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now listen. This is where we get our doctrine of man. Let Genesis 6 form your view of who man is. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see that? Man's thought is only evil all the time. That is to say that every human being suffers from a sin-induced mind. It's not that we're mostly bad. It's not that we have a teeny-weeny bit of goodness in us. No. We are born into this world with a mind naturally and passionately, no, vehemently, intent on thinking evil thoughts and doing nothing but sin. Before your conversion to Christ, all you did was sin. Some of our friends have greatly done a disservice by misreading and misinterpreting the Romans road. The Romans road does not say all have sinned and fallen short. All have sinned and fall short, present tense. Every single day, the unconverted is continually, continually falling. Okay, all they do is sin. Therefore, we need to be born again. We need to be born from above and made new through faith alone in Christ alone. So that we may obtain a new mind, being able to think good thoughts and do good. Now let's go back to Genesis 6 for a second here. Genesis 6, verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Drop down to verse 11. And now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then back up to verse 8, we see a glimpse of God's incomprehensible grace. In the midst of all that, God found favor with Noah. Now be careful with that. Noah did not earn favor. Noah had the same nature. The Hebrew word there is the Hebrew for grace. God had grace upon Noah. Undeserved, unmerited favor. Verse 13, then God said to Noah, 
The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. There you have the instrument of salvation, which you benefit from. Have you ever stopped to think that if it wasn't for the ark, we wouldn't be here right now? Because he decided to save mankind by his grace. In the next few verses, God tells Noah the dimensions of the ark. And then in verse 17, God reveals the plan to literally wipe the slate clean. Behold, I, even I am bringing the flood. Psalm 29. Of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. And so you know the story from there, right? Uh, Water came up from the ground and down from the sky and completely flooded the whole entire earth, leaving only those who were inside the ark alive. And of course, to every kind of animal to repopulate the earth. Now David in Psalm 29 is reminding his readers that God was king over earth even during the most catastrophic, fatal disaster in all of human history. That's what David wants you to get. God sat as king over the flood. The great universal flood was a historical manifestation of Yahweh's global control and dominion over his creation. And so as the as psalm draws to an end, it ends by showing God's power and sovereignty. Not as a random, meaningless force of nature, but as an instrument of judgment. The Lord is sovereign over life. He was then, past tense, and in the second line of verse 10, we see that he's sovereign presently. Look at that phrase. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. He is just as much in control of the weather today as he was during the great flood of Noah's day. Yahweh sits as king, meaning he dwells. He remains. He abides on the throne as I speak. Now, where is this throne? This is the same language we see in Psalm 29, also used in verse, excuse me, in Psalm 2, which you've heard preached recently. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them, talking about rebellious man. So God is king, abiding on his throne in heaven, ruling men and animals and creation. But he just doesn't reign, and that's it. Notice that last little word. Notice that last word in verse 10. It says forever. The Lord reigns forever. The Lord intervenes forever. The Lord has authority 
forever. The Lord does what he pleases forever. The word forever in the Hebrew is used more than 300 times to indicate indefinite continuance into the future. This is speaking of God's continuous, perpetual, everlasting, eternally existent reign. David is saying that God's right to rule over creation is not confined to time, unlike human monarchies are. And, you know, we're familiar with this language, right? With the everlastingness of God. I'm sure you've heard um, Psalm 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good and his loving kindness is everlasting. The word loving kindness, very unique word. It's used abundantly in the Psalms. His loving kindness is everlasting. We've heard that before, right? How about Psalm 117, verse 2? The truth of Yahweh is everlasting. Psalm 119, 142, your righteousness is everlasting. Psalm 119, 160, every one of your ordinances is everlasting. There are dozens more to speak of Yahweh's everlasting love and kindness and truth and righteousness and law. But there are also plenty of verses that address Yahweh's sovereign rule. Psalm 93, verse 2, your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 145, verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So as king of the earth, God controls and sustains all of the physical elements and the laws of nature we see. That's what we mean when we say sovereign. And if you know who God is, then this doctrine is very precious. Because whatever happens, we know a good and righteous, loving, kind God is the person behind it all. In God's sovereignty, he does much more, however, than control the weather. He is actively and personally involved in your life. And according to Psalm 29, he's active in your life in two ways. In the promising of giving you power and in the promising of giving you peace. Now, before we take a, verse that, a look at verse 11, I want to note something. For clarity's sake, these promises are made exclusively to those in verse 9. They are made to believers who come together before the throne of God in worship and proclaim glory. In other words, these promises in verse 11 only applies to those who are genuinely saved. The Bible does not promise anything good unbeliever what does it promise judgment retribution for those who do not obey the gospel and I make this necessary clarification to make sure that we all interpret this verse correctly we cannot take Psalm 29 verse 11 and apply it to everyone 
that would be what we call eisegesis. Read it into the text, right? It only applies to Christians. Now draw your attention to verse 11. We find an area of God's sovereignty manifested in the lives of his people. Verse 11, the Lord will give strength to his people. Now, if we stop for a second and consider the context of this psalm, remember what it is. It's a terrifying, destructive storm at sea, which moved from Lebanon in the north to Kadesh in the south. And remember from last week, if you didn't make it last week, you might want to go back and listen to that message. This will make more sense. Remember from last week, the storm left behind a huge wake of devastation by breaking in pieces the cedars of Lebanon, setting ablaze Mount Hermon, and reducing the forests to splinters. Now picture that in your mind right now. How would the world respond to that? Or better yet, Since I think you know how the world would respond, how would you respond? Or how should you? While others who are not in the assembly of worshiping God are responding with hysteria and pandemonium, God's people are stable. Like a firm foundation. While others' lives are torn in chaos and panic and worry, about this or that thing, God's people remain standing like a sound pillar. While others' lives cannot cope and process and mentally handle the loss of property, God's people remain set in place like a massive boulder that can't be budged. And while others are wallowing and self-pity over the demise of worldly things. God's people have not lost what's chiefly important. And therefore, they don't lose it. They don't fall to pieces. The psalmist is saying, friends, that in the aftermath of a vicious, terrifying, God-sent disaster... God imparts and instills strength in the hearts of his people as a result of responding in worship. We are not the ones that respond to loss via disaster otherwise by frantically running around like Chicken Little. You guys remember who Chicken Little is? We observe, as God's people, what's going on around us. We go into the assembly of worship with God's people. And we leave with the strength to cope because we know that it's God who is king. Directing and commanding the affairs of creation. Now, I know this is hard to comprehend. But I chose this psalm because it has ministered to my soul in inexplicable ways. So I just want to pass this on to you. I understand it's hard to accept for some people. But you need to realize that God does not step off his throne when there's a natural disaster.
He did not step off his throne when there was a massive undersea earthquake in the Indian Ocean in 2004, which triggered a series of tsunamis smashing into the coast of Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, and Thailand. You guys remember that in 04? If You can go online and see footage of it. It's, it's just jaw-dropping. That took the lives of 230,000 people. Some say 280,000. The 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake is the third deadliest earthquake on record. It's the second deadliest tsunami in human history. And it's the fourth deadliest natural disaster in world history since 1900. Now, I could go on and on tell you more about this and remind you or, or teach you about other natural disasters that would blow your mind, and I would encourage you to research that sometime on your own. But I bring up this recent 2004 tsunami earthquake to illustrate the fact that the same God who breaks the cedars of Lebanon and who strips the forests bare is the same sovereign God that caused the Indian Ocean floor to rumble and the waters to rise. There was nothing natural about it. It was a wholly supernatural occurrence. And as Christians, we grieve, yes. It's right to grieve. The Scripture said we should weep with those who weep. We do not have a crisis of faith. We do not need to question the goodness of God, like many do when they see human suffering. We do not live in fear and hopelessness because of loss. And we certainly must not shake our fist at anger at God. That happens. Very often. Some, when they are exposed to true suffering, like many in the Middle East are as we speak, some begin to wrestle with the age-old questions. Nothing new, right? If God is good and omnipotent, then why does he allow all those people to die? You guys want to know the answer to that question? Very simple. Because he's the one and only sovereign king who does what he pleases, when he wants. And according to Paul, I'm not making this up, you have no right to question what God does in his sovereignty. In Romans 9, Paul reprimands the skeptic. He says, who are you, O man? Who are you who answers back to God? In other words, who do you think you are questioning what I do with my authority? We should be asking this question instead. If God is omnipotent and sovereign, sustaining the elements of nature by the word of his power, then why aren't there more 
massive earthquakes every year? Why is there not a tsunami every day? Have you ever thought about that way? So, brothers and sisters, I need to exhort you that never be so foolish as to assume that you have a higher standard of right and, of right and wrong than our infinite God. To question what God does is the epitome of sinful pride, is it not? Furthermore, if you find yourself struggling with this doctrine, God's omnipotence and his sovereignty and the whole age-old problem of evil. Meditate on Psalm 50, verse 21. God says, you thought that I was just like you. In other words, man cannot comprehend the eternal decrees of God. Also consider Isaiah 55, verse um, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. So in our finiteness, we may not have a sufficient answer for a skeptic. But that's okay. You are not responsible to defend God to the pagan. Do not allow unbelievers to put God on the stand. God puts them on the stand. God does not need to answer to man for what he does with his creation. He doesn't need our defense. We are responsible to worship him, no matter what, like Job did. When a disaster took all ten of his children. You are to worship him no matter what because he is your holy, omnipotent, sovereign king. And if you worship him, no matter what, Psalm 29 promises that God will give you power to mentally process even the most destructive earth-shattering disaster. And so I must tell you the truth. Those who do sink into a lengthy or perpetual season of despair and depression due to a loss, they, number one, either don't know God or they did not respond by worshiping God in the assembly proclaiming glory. So we need each other. You need your local church. We do not live in that temple era. In the church age, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, yet we are so obligated to assemble together regularly to glorify God as his people in worship. And the effect of that worship is power imparted to you. I hope you feel empowered by hearing the word preached. I hope you feel empowered by the awesome hymns we sing. 
I hope you feel empowered by the fellowship. I do. But not only that, not only does God promise to give you power, he promises to give you peace. Look at the second line of verse 11. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Peace is from a Hebrew word called shalom. You've probably heard that before. Um, Even Jews today will use that word as a common customary greeting. And it means completeness or soundness or prosperity, tranquility, and contentment. And it's a promise of God's, promise of peace to God's people who have gone through this terrifying storm. And in the aftermath, God is giving his people in the temple peace of mind that unbelievers don't even know exists. Right? Because peace is something you can't buy. It's not something that can be found in self or in another person or circumstances. True peace only comes from the true God. And not only that, I don't believe that David here is merely speaking of earthly contentment. What's more important than earthly contentment? Right? Because, I mean, even people who don't know God, they can rebuild after a storm, right? And they build memorials and they look, oh, look how diligent and resilient we are. Look what we did, right? But the peace that comes from God to us is the eschatological peace with God through faith in Christ. You are blessed with the knowledge by going into the assembly and acknowledging God, glory and strength, and proclaiming glory. You are blessed with the knowledge of having been justified by faith. And as Paul says in Romans 5, because of saving faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That's the peace that should come for you. And speaking of our Lord Jesus, we could just as easily find these same divine attributes revealed in Psalm 29 in the person of Christ, can't we? Jesus displayed holiness and transfiguration. He displayed his omnipotence when he walked on the water and calmed the storm. And his sovereignty is displayed in John's vision in in Revelation 19. Where he says that he saw, written on his thigh, the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our Our triune God is holy omnipotent and sovereign. That's what we learn here from Psalm 29, those three attributes. That's who God is. These these attributes are not all he is, right? This is not exhaustive. But the purpose of this exposition is to get you to see how really simple it is to develop and strengthen your view of who God is by simply studying the Scriptures. And just, just, just memorizing a few references, right? Psalm 29. 
You're all very smart, educated people. You can remember and memorize chapter and verse, or at least book. A doctrine always informs practice. Your knowledge of God's holiness, which you have acquired these last two weeks, should cause you to bow down before him in humiliating reverence, acknowledging his strength and glory. If that's not your response, you've not understood his holiness. Your knowledge of God's omnipotence should drive you into the presence of God. Stand in awe of him and cry out with his people glory. That's what the people in Lebanon did. And your knowledge of God's sovereignty should compel you to faithfully trust your king in all circumstances and reap the blessings of peace and strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for for your promises. And thank you that you've given us a clear, revealed will. We can know who you are, and by knowing who you are, we know how to think and we know what to do. Your holiness drives us to worship, and your holiness drives us to have a proper view of ourselves and sin. Understanding the magnitude as much as possible, your omnipotence can only drive us to proclaim glory. We know that you are sovereign, and sometimes we don't act like it. We profess you're sovereign, but then many times act like we don't really believe it. Will you forgive us, Lord, for our unbelief? Will you forgive us for our obstinance and forgive us of our lack of true understanding of who you are? May you grant peace to all here today. May you grant strength as you promised to those who are weak. Thank you for Jesus Christ who came to give us ultimate peace and having the hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.